the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Monday again. We were just talking. It seems like it's always Monday. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone, dial 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. As always, I want to remind you, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR app. Um, just hit the call now band at the top of your screen. Everything else will be hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great weekend yesterday here at our church. It was uh, Communion Sunday. I always love Communion Sunday, and uh, we had a really, really good time in the service. So uh, I hope that was the case at your church as well. The Lord was pleased, and please, I pray that people are getting saved. Everybody gets saved. We're one person closer to Jesus coming back. And with the things that are happening and the tragedies that are going on, uh, believe me, it's uh, Jesus has got to be getting ready to get up at this very moment to summon us to be with him, to meet him in the air. Well, we love your calls and questions. Uh, let's get right to some of the questions that have been sent in. Uh, my first one comes from Dewey. Um, Hi, Pastor Ron. There are many doctrines I've come across during my Christian journey. The little God's doctrine was a teaching that always came up during my short time in the Word of Faith movement and prosperity gospel theology. Now, let me stop right there. That's just the first part of Dewey's question. But anything that comes up with the Word of Faith movement or prosperity gospel theology is distorted or even perverted. So to, to call it a doctrine uh, is is misleading. It's just lies. It's just lies. The way the prosperity movement, the word of faith movement, uh, takes um, uh, the little God's doctrine and tries to transfer it to human beings, of course, is uh, horribly, horribly aberrant. Uh, he continues, I understand the doctrine basically teaches that believers are little gods. Uh, this doctrine came up well uh, with the ministry of Kenneth Hagin. My mother was a big fan of Kenneth Hagin, but I personally find him to be a very flawed teacher. I know the basis for this teaching is Psalm 82, uh, verse 6, um, where the psalmist says, I said, you are gods, you're all sons of the Most High. I never really understood the concept about this teaching. I would like to ask, what is your view and perspective on the little God's doctrine? Let me also say that if any of you out there have any ministry materials at all from Kenneth Hagin Ministries, he is now, um, I, I hope with the Lord, but but I certainly don't, uh, I, I can't validate that based on his his uh, his teaching uh, but if you have anything at all from Kenneth Hagin 
Uh, throw it away. It's just horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. Let me talk briefly about this. I think there's a pretty simple uh, explanation. Um, so let me go to um, this. Um, the, in Psalm 82, verse 6, the gods, now we're talking specifically the gods that are being talked about there, the little g-gods, I like to say. They're human judges. Uh, they're rulers, people in positions of authority. Uh, they've been granted that position of authority by the Lord. And the whole point of Psalm 82 is that earthly judges must act with impartiality. They must be focused on true justice because those judges will one day stand before the judge, Jesus Christ. That's very, very important. So God's in this context is simply uh, not like an idol, not certainly not a big G God, but just somebody with a position of authority. When Jesus quotes this passage in Psalm 82, uh, he says that um, uh, he's directing the statement, you are gods, uh, to those to whom the word of God came uh, and those who received the message of God. They were the ones called God. And in the context of Jesus' ministry, he just claimed to be the Son of God. That's John chapter 10. Uh, and the unbelieving Jews responded by charging him with blasphemy. Every time God, uh, Jesus claimed to be God, and he claimed to be God often, uh, they charged him with blasphemy and wanted to kill him. Well, that's when Jesus quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. And he says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own the sin of the world? And Jesus' point is simple. Uh, you charge me with blasphemy based on my use of this title, the Son of God, yet your own scriptures apply the same term to others besides God. And he's simply pointing out their hypocrisy. Dewey, thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Um, we get a question from Anonymous that we just sent in to our producer. Uh, should Christians allow their children to celebrate Halloween? Wow, this is the earliest I've ever gotten this question in the year. Um, uh, yeah, I think they should. Now, not not like other kids do, obviously. Remember, we're set apart. We're to be different. Um, uh, what I have suggested in the past is that uh, parents take a, a Bible character and dress their kids up like the Bible character, David King. Uh, I mean, sorry, David the King or or uh, uh, Abraham or any of the other uh, Bible uh, characters um, and and um, let them go out. People say, well, who are you? Well, I'm King David from the Bible. And even in, in their way, uh, enable them to be a witness. Um, I don't think that Christians should allow their children to dress up like ghosts or witches or devils or anything like that. Uh, I just don't think that we ought to take Christian kids and say, uh, I know the rest of the world's kids are having fun, but you can't have fun. What we need to do is redeem the the, the holiday um, the, the and, and celebrate it and turn it into something that honors God. And that's when the Lord will be pleased. You know, the idea that, well, that's of the devil. It's the devil's day. We shouldn't be a part of it. No, we should redeem it and transform it. And if we do that, um, then, then people are going to know who we are. And it gives us an opportunity then to really be able to share our faith with strangers. Parents, go with your kids, watch them, share their faith. It'll warm your heart. Here's a question. This one is from Carlos. Hi, Pastor Ron. I wanted to get your thoughts. My son's school here, um, the teacher wants the students to get parents' permission to talk to to them about sex, STDs, and babies. I denied my son's request and talked to him about the Bible between husband and wife, or sex being between husband and wife, I guess is what he means. Uh, he's 12 years old, so he knows that already. Do these subjects get talked about at your academy? If not, when do we speak to our children about sex? Where do babies come from in STDs? He already knows that marriage is between a man and a woman, and kids cannot be born unless they are married. Thank you. Uh, Carlos, let me, let me, I, I know you didn't mean it the way it came out, but just that last sentence, kids cannot be born unless they're married. Of course kids can be born. Unmarried people get pregnant all the time, and kids are born to unmarried uh, moms and dads 
all the time. So they can certainly be born. What I think you meant to say should not be born or, or, or only married people should be having babies. And that, of course, is the biblical position. Um, you know, I think this is important. Carlos, the world is changing so much. Um, you know, when I grew up, and that was 200 years ago, when I grew up, um, you know, the information we had about sex came from Playboy magazine or or just talk on the playground between between kids. It wasn't out there uh, like it is now. Um, kids used to, to go through puberty much later than, than kids go through puberty now. Uh, it's because they're exposed to sex. You know, the Song of Songs says, do not awaken desire before it's time. And I think our bodies physically begin transforming when when our minds begin to to um, be bombarded with, with uh, conversation about sex. So uh, all of that to say, I think that we need to talk to our kids much earlier than we have in the past. And we need to do it from a biblical position. I want to commend you. I want to commend you for not giving your son permission to participate in a public school uh, discussion about sex. Obviously, homosexuality, um, um, sexual identity dysphoria, those kind of things are going to be embraced in a public school. And uh, and our kids just shouldn't have any part about that. Um, um, sex itself sexually transmitted disease in babies, I think those are, are legitimate things to talk about uh, in school, public or otherwise, but it has to be set in the right context. Here at our academy, um, we have two separate times that we do this. When our kids are in the fifth and sixth grade, um, we have a health class, and they, they talk to them, it's called puberty class, um, and when kids are going through puberty, the bodies are changing. We talk to the kids about that. We want them to understand what's going on in their bodies. And um, I, I think that's important. It is not about sex. It's about their health, about the changes that are going on in their bodies. We also then follow that up uh, with an eighth grade health class. And we talk very openly about sex, about sexually transmitted disease, uh, about babies and, and all of those things. Um, just it's, it's a biology class, and we talk about it, but again, it is from a biblical perspective on those things. And we make no apologies, Carlos, for telling our kids that um, um, all sex, all sex, I'm talking masturbation, I'm talking all sex, outside of marriage is sin. And then we show them the word of God. We talk to them about the, the choice that they're going to have to make. Um, but we, we also say, of course, that sex is between a husband and a wife. Uh, it, it has to be people of different genders. Uh, and then we, we simply talk to them about the biblical perspective on all of those things. And it's very important uh, our kids are raised in sort of a sheltered environment. Now, not all the kids that come to our school are Christians. So, um, you know, we have different degrees of understanding. But we want to be sure to share with them all a biblical construct about what sexuality is all about. It's very important. And uh, I think our people do a wonderful, wonderful job with it. So, Carlos, I hope that answers your question. Uh, it's really important. You know, with our children now, um, we have, how can I say this? Our kids are bombarded with sexuality everywhere they go. If you've given your child access to a cell phone, whether they're in second grade or fourth grade or sixth grade, if they have access, they're going to be thinking about sex because you can't get away from it. Um, TV commercials, um, sexual innuendo, even radio commercials, um, social media. Um, sex is everywhere. And again, that's why I think kids are going through puberty uh, much earlier than they have in the past. Uh, it's just a culture that we live in, a culture trying to, to normalize sex, even deviant sex, and uh, we need to protect our children from that. And, and you can't protect your children by sheltering them. You protect them by equipping them so that they know um, 
what's right, what's wrong, and they understand that they have a responsibility to make a choice in their own lives about what they're going to do, the right thing or the wrong thing. Thank you for the question, Carlos, very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from... Oh, we got a phone call, so let me go to, to the phone first so he doesn't hold. Jerry, on line one. Jerry, thanks for calling. You're on the air. My pleasure, Pastor Ron. How are you today? I know I'm you doing like well. the hot weather. Oh, I love it. Somebody was I complaining. I disagree with you on that, but <laughs> I, um, I'm going back. Well, I'm up with all the current studies that we do at Calvary, but I'm doing one that I, because I've been going two years already to the church. Where does the time go? Uh, but I'm going back through your Revelation study on the website, the app. And today, this morning, I was in, I'm beginning Revelation 3. You covered verses 3, or chapter 3, rather, 1 through 6. And on verse 1, um, it talks about this is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Now I'm reading, I know you said don't get a uh, life application Bible, you know, let the Holy Spirit translate it to you, but I do have a life application Bible, and it's saying that the sevenfold spirit is another name for the Holy Spirit. The seven stars are the messengers or leaders of the churches, and I also referenced my Dr. Tony Evans' Uh, commentary, which basically says the same thing. So either I missed something or I don't know, but you said, because I wrote it down in my um, side of the Bible here, Isaiah, and I did not get the connection. I don't see verses. So I just need you to get me back on track. I, I just got confused when you said Isaiah. I thought that you meant it was Isaiah, and I totally lost where that was going. So please go ahead and correct me. I'll hang up and I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Um, yeah, I can do that. Um, um, the, the the sevenfold, um, when it says these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, um, the, the seven spirits of God. Now, seven is, is the number of completion or perfection, either way you can use it. And um, um, the, the idea here is it's, it's the completeness of God. So what Jesus is saying, and this is the introduction of the church at Sardis, he's telling the people there that what they need is the power of God's spirit in their lives and obviously operating in their church. Sardis was um, decomposing. This was a, a body that was dying. Um, and yet, because Jesus raises the dead, the idea here is that it's not too late. So the seven spirits of God doesn't mean there are seven holy spirits. It doesn't mean that at all. Seven's a number of completion. What Jesus is saying is that their hope lies in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what what I I, I my reference to Isaiah was, and remember this this is a Jewish author here. Uh, Isaiah talked about the the, um, the the sevenfold spirit of God, and he talks about those spirits. I think um, um, off the top of my head, I'm thinking it's Isaiah chapter 14, um, but, but I could be wrong about that. But it's a sevenfold spirit, it, again, and it talks about the spirit of power, the spirit of wisdom, and, and and so on. So that's the reference from Isaiah the prophet. That's what the author John is referring to when he talks about the seven spirits of God. Um, Jesus is simply telling them that their only hope lies in the power of his spirit alone. That's the way to raise this dying church back to life. So, Jerry, that's what he's talking about. You know... Um, We've got to rely on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, a church with the best people in the world doesn't matter if that, those people aren't empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that's really important. And the, the reference to Isaiah, Jerry, was simply Isaiah's description of the sevenfold Spirit of God. Again, not meaning there are seven spirits, but just the completeness of the Holy Spirit himself. 
Thank you, Jerry. Good question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's go to a question that we've got now from, i got to find it again. This one is from Scott from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, regarding your answer about tattoos on Tuesday's show. This was Tuesday of last week. Uh, he has a follow-up. I believe that the so-called Christians who practice self-flagellation also break God's commands in Leviticus 19, verse 28 as well. A lot of them blindly do it with thinking they must share in Jesus' suffering too. Can I comment on that point? Also, I read that others say that Paul alluded to doing this in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, when he says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. Um, Scott, you're right. Um, uh, while, while the prohibition in Leviticus 19 doesn't have anything to do with people today, uh, we, we, we see Christians, uh, most notably um, that I'm aware of in the Philippines, where they will actually endure crucifixion and they will have uh, whips and, and, and stuff uh, um, that that's not a violation of Leviticus 19. That law is only for Jews, uh, and and the idea there is it's practiced in uh, connection with the worship of of false gods, um, and and that's not what these Christians are doing. Um, and and I'm going to trust that they're really Christians, but they're just badly taught Christians, Scott. So uh, it's certainly not something that we should do. It has nothing to do with sharing in Jesus' sufferings. He's not talking about the physical sharing. That wasn't Paul's point at all. And in 1 Corinthians 9, when he says he disciplines his body to make it his slave, what he's talking about is denying his flesh, saying no to himself, saying no to temptation, so that he's now able to serve God. And, you know, I, I say to our church here all the time, Scott, that, you can't say yes to Jesus until you first said no to you. I get up every every day, and I have a battle that goes on. My flesh wants things a certain way. And before my feet hit the ground, I'm already wrestling with my flesh. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give in today, Lord, of my own free will. I choose to serve Jesus, that kind of thing. And I'm crucifying the flesh. And when we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, when we... Um, um, beat our flesh, discipline our bodies. Uh, we want to we want to make the flesh part of it um, our slave, so that we can then be embraced by the righteousness of Christ. So that's all it's meaning. And, and Scott, for anybody who would who would read First uh, Corinthians nine twenty seven that way, uh, discipline your body, training your body is not beating your body. So. Um, that's a, a really distorted view on things. And so I completely agree with you on that. We're inside four minutes. We've got time, I think, for this question. This one is from Stacy. Um, from our email inbox, she says, um, Psalm 26, verses 1 through 3. And let me read it, and then I'll get into her question. Um, David writes, Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I've trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. Now, here's what Stacy says. I was reading this psalm a couple of weeks ago. I read it a thousand times. Good for you, Stacy. But it hit differently that day. In being transparent, I got choked up and started talking to Jesus pouring out that when I read it, I realized how most times I'm the complete opposite of that scripture. I asked Jesus to forgive me and that I long for a deeper, more mature relationship with him. Let me take a minute here just to say that this is why we read our Bibles in the morning, so God can speak to you afresh from his living and his active word. And she did it just perfectly. When when the Spirit of God convicted her, she repented and uh, and, and was honest with the Lord. Uh, but then she says, this scripture has been circling in my mind since, and I want to know more. Before the psalm starts, it reads, of David. Was David the author? The answer is yes. No one was writing about him. That was David who was the author. Um, that's clear. Uh, and then she says, if it's David, I have even more questions. I know that scripture says David was a man after God's own heart. God loved David, and from his line, we have Jesus. David also made a lot, all capitals, of mistakes. And boy, could he sin and mess up. Here's the question. David didn't lead a blameless life, and he did falter. 
and he always repented and humbled himself and asked for forgiveness? Is that why you can ask God to vindicate him, to test him? Because of the last sentence, mindful of your unfailing love and living in reliance on your faithfulness, sounds like David is saying that he knows he must die to himself daily, repent and stay close to the Lord. And lastly, is this scripture an example of the sanctification process? You know, we have to be careful, Stacey, about applying New Testament principles to David because David uh, didn't know anything about the New Testament. He certainly was not inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, I think it was David, a man who really loved God, David, who hated his sin. Now, he was a prolific sinner, but he hated it. And I think that he was a man after God's heart. Uh, God's heart uh, is an indication that he hated his sin, and he was the best repenter that I can find in the whole Bible. So I think that's what he means. God hates sin. David hates sin. Certainly he wasn't blameless. But by faith, just like you and me in a New Testament sense, by faith, David was forgiven by the Lord. And so he's not saying, I haven't made mistakes. Read Psalm 51. You'll talk about the, he'll talk about those mistakes. Uh, but this is just David coming to a God of mercy and compassion and love and patience. Stacey, thanks for reading your Bible and letting the Spirit of God speak to you. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585. I neglected at the top of the program to mention our Monday night Bible studies Uh, Here at the church, we have our men's and women's and youth Bible studies all taking place at 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Uh, The ladies uh, ladies can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com. It's always much better uh, to to come in person. That way you can participate in the Q&A and the, the, the discussion happens afterwards. We like to make that personal and private so we don't live stream that. Uh, and especially uh, the last few Bible studies uh, that have been so rich, the, the conversation following it has been equally rich. So um, that's tonight live here at 7 o'clock. Uh, you can bring your kids. we got uh, child care for the tiny ones, junior high school and high school ministry for the older ones. Uh, and, of course, the men will be taught by Pastor Ken um, tonight as well. Here is a question from Anonymous that came into our studio. Um, after reading Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. As soon as I saw that, I know where the question is going. We get this all the time. Um, I was wondering if it's actually possible for a Christian uh, to receive repentance after being uh, led into the darkness and uh, straying away from God. You know, one of the the things, people take this, this passage out of context so often, and it scares them to death. Well, I messed up. There's nothing that can be done. I'm going to go to hell. It's not that at all. Hebrews is a wonderful book that, that just oozes eternal security. Um, but, but here's what he's saying. And he's dealing in context with a church that's being persecuted and has been persecuted now for more than 20 years. And they're getting tired. And the Judaizers who are, who are uh, persecuting them, I'm just telling them, look, just leave Christianity, become a Jew again, and and uh, we'll stop persecuting. Your life will be easier. And what Paul is doing, and I believe Paul to be the author of Hebrews, what he's doing is warning them. The book of Hebrews is is made up of a whole bunch of warnings. Six, some people say, I think there are seven uh, in the book of Hebrews. It starts with drifting away and ends with full-blown apostasy. And uh, and those warnings are to protect us from that slide. Um, when he gets to Hebrews chapter 6, he's just saying to these Jews, look, you know that there's no sacrifice for sins. Jesus Christ died. You, you learned it. The Holy Spirit confirmed it. Uh, you've tasted the Spirit of God. You've tasted what it's like uh, to be forgiven of your sins. 
Um, and, and what Paul is saying is if you fall away, if you go back to Judaism, there's no sacrifice for sins left. What are you going to do with your sins if, if in fact, there's no acceptable sacrifice other than Jesus Christ? So this isn't if you mess up one time, you're in trouble kind of thing, Anonymous. Not at all. Uh, he's simply saying that there's no place else to go. You remember when Jesus said to uh, Peter and the others, uh, when when uh, uh, he gave his eat the flesh of my flesh and drink the blood of my blood speech, and people started leaving in droves. And uh, the disciples looked at him and said, this is a hard saying. Who can endure it? And Jesus looked at him, and I love his response. He made him make a personal decision. He says, are you too going to fall away? And Peter said, Lord, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? And so um, th- that's what he's doing. He's, he's, he's trying to make them understand that there's only one solution for sins that can make their temporal lives a little easier and avoid persecution. But, but then they're going to have to deal with the fact that there's no sacrifice for sins left. So that's what he's saying there. Now, let me give you an example of why we know that's the case. Peter, the great apostle, I don't think there's very many people that fell away much worse than he did. He was warned. Jesus said, don't worry, Peter. Satan's asked for you by name, but I'm praying for you. I've prayed for you. You will deny me. Oh, I'll never deny you. The others might deny you. And, of course, we know, all of us, the story of Peter's three denials. Well, if that was the case, I'll I'll throw in one trump card. Jesus said, and Peter would have heard him, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. That would make it sound as though Peter was toast. But we also know that Jesus went back and restored Peter. He went back and restored him. And if Peter could blow it that bad, and he can come back, what would make us think that we can't? First John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, that's simply a statement. This is if you agree with God about your sin. That's what confession is. It's not just the words that come out of your mouth. He, God, is faithful and just to forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. That means you can come back instantly and your sins wiped away, fellowship completely restored. So certainly, and the whole Bible mandates this belief, all we have to do is confess our sins. Jesus' arms are open and we can come back and be restored to the Lord. And the, the reality is, Anonymous, that we all of us know Christians who have blown it big time and who have been forgiven and have returned to the Lord and been accepted fully and been used by the Lord to do wonderful things. So this isn't God's little verse to keep us all so scared that we try to do the right thing all the time. This is simply God saying to Jews, Christians who are Jewish by birth, If you go back to Judaism, what are you going to do about your sin? And so that's all this is in Hebrews chapter 6. It certainly does not mean at all that if you blow it, you can't come back to the Lord. Again, the rest of Scripture mitigates against that very thing. Okay, let's go to Kevin's question from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. Praying you are well. I was listening to the Bible man, and I think he's talking about Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man. And he stated there's no such thing as the rapture. Explain First uh, Thessalonians 4, 13, verse 17. Paul was telling his audience that their loved ones who have died will be resurrected, so there's no need to have no hope. He explained how many pastors confuse these scriptures, but mentioned there's no such thing as the rapture. I would like to think the apostles wanted to be raptured with Christ, yet they had to endure till the end. What makes pastors who teach about the rapture think it will be different from the earlier times? I totally agree. After reading the scripture carefully, it sounds like this rapture was just made up. It's not even in the Bible. I certainly like to know who's right. Uh, You two have... Uh, followers listening need to know what is true. So evidently, uh, he thinks I'm wrong too. Um, I would ask you, Kevin, to really, really read your Bible. 
Hank Hanegraaff um, is an Orthodox Christian. He's, he's changed what he believes so many times over the years that it's hard to keep up. He's certainly not somebody that can be depended on as an authority on the Word of God. He's certainly not qualified to answer questions. He has since becoming an Orthodox um, Christian. He has denied um, um, the, the, the substitutionary, penal substitutionary atonement of the Lord, um, which I believe is an essential or a historic Christian faith. Uh, he has changed his mind on Mary and her role. Um, he's become Catholicized almost uh, in terms of his orthodoxy. And he has uh, refuted all of the things that he so confidently taught in all those years when I was growing up listening to Hank Hennegraaff. Um, Hank Hennegraaff at one time was a Calvary Chapel guy. He was uh, uh, went to Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. Uh, he, he appeared there many times. Uh, and he has sort of undone all all of the things that he used to believe, including the rapture. Now, here's what happens. Smart people outsmart themselves. Um, he's partially right in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, Paul is writing because people were dying in Thessalonica. And um, um, there were people in Thessalonica saying, uh, hey, it, it, Jesus hasn't come back. And they died, so they're lost. And so what he was telling them, no, that's not true. So that's the reason there. And I'm going to read something to you, Kevin, that is very important. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the resurrection chapter. He says in verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He's talking about the need to be changed. And then he says this, verse 51, Listen, I tell you a mystery. A mystery, the Greek word musterian, and it means something that's never before been revealed. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That's the word we get our English word metamorphosis from. We will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we... The dead already did. They're raised. They're in the presence of the Lord. But then he says, and we will be changed. We'll be metamorphosed. So the idea there is, is that can only be a rapture of the church. That is the definitive. It's a mystery. We're not given all the details. But when he says, we will not all sleep, he's talking to Christians who are alive at the coming of the Lord for his church. We will not all die. Sleep is a euphemism in the ancient world for death. We know when Lazarus... Um, was raised from the dead. Um, Jesus uh, told his disciples when he got the news that Lazarus was sick, uh, he said, Lazarus is asleep. The disciples said, well, if he sleep, then Lord, he'll get better. And Jesus corrected him. He said, no, Lazarus is dead. So it's just a euphemism. It's not soul sleep. It's a euphemism for death. And then he says, we who are alive at the coming of the Lord, we will be changed. Why? Because these flesh and blood bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Not, we, we can't even go to an, into an airplane without it being um, uh, the oxygen levels being changed uh, so that we can breathe. Um, to go to heaven, how much more will all be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, and there's not a literal trumpet, it's a, 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 a Jewish symbol, a trumpet of readiness. Uh, and he says, uh, the dead will be raised. The ones who died will be with the Lord, and then we will be changed and will be in the presence of the Lord. So that's the rapture of the church. Now, Jesus hinted about the rapture. He told his disciples in the Olivet Discourse about all of the things that were going to happen during the Great Tribulation. And he said to his disciples, pray that you will be counted worthy to escape these things. So, yeah, we want to escape them, and we should pray that we'll be counted worthy. We want to be that last generation. So the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and we will be changed. Why? Because when God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, he cannot, it's out of character for him, he cannot pour out his wrath on Christians because Jesus has already accepted the fullness of the wrath of God for us. Our sin has been judged. And so we're going to go to heaven in the rapture. 
Um, the word rapture is not in the Bible, you're right, but the Greek word harpazo in the Latin uh, Vulgate, the word uh, is raptus or rapturo. Um, that's why where we get the word rapture from. And this is an event. It's an undeniable event. Now, again, these smart guys, they've decided that, no, we're all going to be in the Great Tribulation. When you mentioned that the apostles had to endure through the end, well, Kevin, so too do you and I if Jesus doesn't come in my lifetime. Uh, I've been saved for 32 years. I really believe that Jesus would be back by now, but he has not. Peter says uh, that he's um, um, not slack concerning his promise, but but he's being patient, unwilling that any should perish. God's patience. I'm grateful he waited till at least 1991 when I got saved. But God's patience is because there are a finite number of Gentiles. Romans chapter 11. Until the full number of Gentiles comes in, non-Jews, uh, when the last one gets saved, then we're going to go to heaven. That's when the great tribulation is going to begin on earth, when God turns his attention back to Israel. So be careful. These arrogant men who say there will be no rapture. Um, the Apostle Paul was a pre-trib rapture believer, and he makes that clear in his epistles. Jesus hinted at it, told us to pray that we would be counted worthy to escape um, the things coming on those who lived on the earth, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, if you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 4, um, the church disappears from the book of Revelation. The outline uh, of the book of Revelation to make it easy to understand. Um, John is told to write the things uh, that, you, that, that are, the things that you see, and the things that will be. And uh, the things that are, the church age, that's um, uh, chapter 1 is the things that he sees, the things that are, chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus talks to the seven churches. Uh, and then from chapter 4 on, the, the church is completely absent from the book of Revelation until chapter 19, when we return with the Lord in judgment. So, Kevin, um, these men who who boldly say, um, there is no rapture, and this is getting to be more and more popular. Um, just read your Bible. Uh, I can give you a little bit of help. Um, you go to our website, calvaryessay.com. Uh, I do a complete and very thorough teaching on the rapture of the church and the biblical evidence for both Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, at the, the very first Bible study in Revelation chapter 4 every time, so it's easy to, to, to go to. I can also recommend to you the works of John Walvoord, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. Um, uh, he's he's a, a brilliant scholar uh, and, and does a wonderful, complete treatment of uh, the end times, uh, and, and in particular, the rapture of the church, John Walvoord, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. Kevin, if you don't believe in the rapture, Paul calls it uh, our hope, our blessed hope. If you don't believe in the rapture, there's not going to be a lot of fruit in your lives. And that's just the way it is. And you'll notice there is very little fruit coming from Hank Hanegraaff's life especially compared to before. And anybody who's changed his doctrine as much as he has is somebody that isn't dependable. Uh, oh, yes, well, before when I taught that, I was just wrong, I was naive, but now I've come to believe that's simply not good scholarship. So I hope that works. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question anonymously again. I expected this one. Um, Pesteron, is it time for Christians to finally support gun control? I can't believe these things keep happening. Now, obviously, we had a, another mass murder here um, this weekend uh, in North Texas, Allen, Texas, a, a shopping center, an outlet center, um, and um, at least eight people killed. I don't know if any more uh, have been reported dead or not. Um Anonymous guns aren't killing these people. Uh, you know, I just want people to think logically. We hear the same things so much from the press. We hear the same things from the left. We hear all of this. Guns haven't changed. The destructive nature of guns, uh, it's always been guns are for one reason, to kill. That's that's the reason. You know, people like to sport shoot and they like to hunt those things, but, but guns kill. 
um, we didn't have mass murders in the old days. The problem is that people have changed. And now there's no restraint on evil. This is a time that Paul wrote about. Mark this in the last days. And we're in the last hours of the last days, Anonymous. There will be terrible times, perilous times. The King James uses the word perilous. Um, And then he describes the time that we live in right now. The problem is people. The problem is that mentally ill people are able to run and, 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 and just be completely outside the control of the law. We've got young men primarily. I'm, I'm being general here. We've got young men primarily who are shooting people up, whether it's high school campuses, college campuses, uh, now shopping malls or concert venues. Uh, we've got these, these unstable people, and nobody's controlling them. In, 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 in almost every case, we can look at these people and see that there were all kinds of warning signs and nothing whatsoever was done. And these guns, in most cases, are bought in some of the states that have very strict gun control laws. The problem is that these people don't care about the law. So I think it's time for Christians, I think it's time for unbelievers to say, wait a minute, the problem is us. And the reason we don't do that is because we have a cause. We want to to to, to convince people of something. And if they think that Gun control, um, ignore it. I give two examples: New York City, Chicago. Those two cities have very strict, among the most strict gun control laws in our country, and their streets are littered with murder. Littered with murder. Tragedy happens every weekend in Chicago. Mass murder every weekend in Chicago, and nobody does anything about it. I don't think there's any doubt that the people who are killing people would continue to kill people. Whether AR-15s were legal or not. And the bad guys are always going to have guns. Now, I'm not a gun person, so let me just be real clear about this. I've owned a gun in my life for about a week, and Paula found it in the house. It was just somebody that gave me a gun. And, 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 and that guy, she, didn't, she wasn't comfortable with the gun in the house, so the gun was gone. So I'm not a gun person. Uh, I fired a gun a couple of times in my life out in the desert. Uh, and I, di- I didn't enjoy it. There wasn't anything fun about it. I don't go hunting. So um, I'm not a gun advocate. But we are a nation of rules. We're a nation governed by a constitution. And the minute that Constitution is trampled on, when our rights are taken from us, they will never stop taking those rights away from us. The problem isn't the gun. The problem is the people. And unless we come back to a place of law and order, and I have no false hope that this is going to happen, unless we make people accountable for the choices they make in life, Things aren't going to get any better. They're going to get worse. So people say, well, things are getting worse and worse and worse. That's exactly what our Bibles tell us. So no, I don't think it's time for Christians to support gun control. What I think it's time is for Christians to pray that our nation would come to repentance before God, ask for forgiveness, and God, in his mercy, would, would, would send a revival. Short of that, This is the world that we now live in, a world that's excluded God, a world that has celebrated violence, has celebrated rebelliousness, a world where lawlessness in the streets is being applauded by our political system a world where our Supreme Court justices have been threatened with their lives because of decisions on cases that come before them, and nobody says anything about it. Our problem isn't guns. Our problem 
is sin. So Anonymous, be real. Think about what the real problem is. Okay, we're almost out of time. Here's a question that I can do uh, very quickly. Here's one from Oscar. He says, I get bored easily reading the Bible. Do you have any tips? Oscar, discipline. That's all discipline. God doesn't care if you get bored. He wants to talk to you. Is it important enough to you to hear from God to invest time and effort into your Bible? Discipline. A lot of the books in the Bible are tedious. But you have disciplined yourself to read it and then you'll reap the benefit of what the Word has to say to you. So it's very important that we are in the Word, being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's new thinking. And the only source of new thinking, Oscar, in this world is the Word of God. So, bored or not, discipline yourself to do it. Hey, you hear the music? We are done for today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Thank you for tuning in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.